The fifth century church father, Saint Augustine, interesting, it's the early church that, that called him Saint. That wasn't the name his mother gave him. He once described all humanity throughout time in four different states, kind of going through time from the original Garden of Eden to the new garden in the new Jerusalem. Here they are. At creation, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was created perfect with both the ability to not sin or to sin. And sin they did. And so, after the fall, since Adam and Eve, we are all born sinners with the ability to sin, but not the ability to not sin. In other words, sin, we will. But good news. Having been redeemed, we still have the ability to sin, but also the ability to not sin. That may come as a surprise to you. Not to live perfectly, not teaching sinless perfection, but we can pursue holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can choose not to sin. Fourth, in heaven, we will once again be perfect, this time without the ability to sin. Can anybody say hallelujah? hallelujah. So, every Christian who has died and gone to be with the Lord is in the fourth state, perfect, without the ability to sin. <laughs> but then there's us. Everyone still alive, everyone on the planet, everyone in this room right now is either in the second or third states. You see, no one is perfect. We know that by experience. The Garden of Eden is long gone. But, but everyone is either an unredeemed or redeemed sinner. Now, I, I know people don't like to be called sinners. They, they'd rather be called saints. We'll come to that. I get that. All I mean is that everyone alive today has the ability to sin. So in that sense, we can be called sinners, but not everybody has the ability to not sin. You see, that's the difference between the second and third states. And so maybe you're here today unredeemed. That is not saved. And you find yourself still living in your dreadful, destructive sin. In fact, you know well by now that you do not have the ability to say no to sin. Oh, oh to be sure, you may have tried. But, but, but listen, sin swallows you up as sure as the setting of the sun swallows light and brings inevitable darkness. And sin, you do quite well. And maybe you're tired of that. Tired of trying and failing. Tired of sinning and ruining your life and the lives of those around you. The darkness comes and you wait for light with the next revolution of the planet. But darkness descends again in its never-ending, unbreakable grip. I have good news for you. You can surrender your life to Jesus and allow him to start transforming your life. 
all your troubles won't go away. You won't be perfect, but you can be a new creation, a new person in Christ. If that's you today, my prayer is that those words from those couple of paragraphs will resound in your mind all morning long. Listen, your life is a mess. You know it. Those around you know it. I can't fix it, and neither can you. But there is one who can. But I want to talk to the majority of people in this room. You see, most of us are supposed to be, by confession, in the third state. We are redeemed followers of Jesus. We still have the ability to sin and sometimes do. But we have the ability to not sin. Further, we are supposed to say no to sin as a way of life. It should be the characteristic of our life. We've all seen the bumper sticker. Sinners are not sinless. They just sin less. That should be true. Maybe if you were honest, you'd say, I fail more than I want. I give in to sin far too often. I don't want to. But I often fail. If that is your experience, as it at times has been mine, I have a word of encouragement for us today. Read the text with me, Hebrews 13, verses 20 to the end of the book. Now, when I said that in second service, someone whistled. I had security escort him out in shackles. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brothers, bear with this word of exhortation for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and greet all of your leaders and all the saints. That means holy ones. Does that feel like you? Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Obviously, this is our last sermon in the book of Hebrews. I I must say that I had looked forward to, for years to teach this particular book, and it has not disappointed, at least me. We, we, We began this study in January of last year, over 16 months ago. Now, to be fair, this is, this is only our 54th sermon in the book. We've covered other things along the way. Now, it just so happens that yesterday, yesterday, on the Gospel Coalition website, I, I found that there's a class that you can, I think it's free, there's a class that you can take, taught, taught by Dr. Michael Kruger, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. He is teaching a class on Hebrews, 33 lectures that said, and I thought, lightweight, Just over a year of sermons in Hebrews, which is something when you consider the author just wrote in verse 22, but I urge you, brothers, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, briefly, 
Several thoughts. First, he calls this letter a word of exhortation. This is the exact phrase used in Acts 13 uh, of a sermon Paul gave in this synagogue in Antioch. A word of exhortation then is a sermon. And, and most see this author, whoever he is, as a former leader, pastor in the church to which he now writes. And he writes what he calls a, I love this, a brief sermon, which is the second thing to notice. Listen very carefully. Most agree that it would take about an hour to read this sermon, that is Hebrews, aloud, out loud. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture considers a brief sermon about an hour long, just saying. So it has been quite the task to preach 54 sermons from one brief sermon. Kind of proud of that. But that leads to the third thing to notice about this verse. I urge you, brothers, sisters, bear with this word of exhortation. Bear with this sermon. What does that mean, bear with? Quite simply, it means to listen to it and do what it says. James says, don't just listen to the word and and, and fool yourselves. Do what it says. You see, the word exhortation literally means to call someone alongside of you. It could be to call someone alongside to give them a word of encouragement, kind of put your arm around them, or a word of exhortation to, to admonish them to some action. And, and as we have seen, our author has actually done both through, through, through this particular book. He has both encouraged and warned or admonished his readers. The encouragement has been marvelous. It's this, Jesus is better. He's better. He's better because he's supposed to be. He's the fulfillment of all to which the Old Testament pointed. In fact, he did what the Old Covenant could never do. In fact, it was never intended to do. He brought the the New Covenant through his sacrificial death. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, something the blood of bulls and goats could never do. He fulfilled all of those Old Testament types, all of those Old Testament promises. Listen, just as planned. There is a plan that's going from that Garden of Eden to the new garden in the new Jerusalem, and God is working to fulfill all things according to his plan. Therefore, the warning, the exhortation has been, don't leave Don't turn your back on Jesus and and return to the old covenant and I've thrown in it no extra charge. Don't turn to some other religion. I know that's popular. I know that's a really in thing to do, particularly with young people. Let me just dabble in something else. Don't do it. There remains no sacrifice for sin there and therefore no forgiveness there. You will die in your sin. Therefore, I urge you, I, I plead with you, bear with this word of exhortation. It is, after all, in your eternal best interest. Which brings me back to the introduction. As most of us are redeemed followers of Jesus, we should be living lives of consistent, albeit not perfect, but consistent spiritual victory. But, but through this study, perhaps you have, have felt less than victorious. Maybe you haven't felt very strong. As I said, perhaps you have been one whose life has been characterized by by regular failure. Perhaps if you were honest, there there have been times you have felt like scrapping this whole thing called Christianity and walking away. Perhaps you're considering that right now. Perhaps you walked away. 
And you just happen to be here this morning because it's Mother's Day and you want to make mommy happy. And here's your question, here's your comment, here's your accusation. I've tried and I have failed more times than I can count. Why can't I walk faithfully? Why can't I walk the Christian life? This whole thing doesn't really seem to work. Oh, how I hope there are people like that here this morning because I have very good news for you. You can. You can walk faithfully, but you must understand both how and who is living this life in and through you. To be clear, the Christian faith does not give you some personal, profound ability to be a good person. Let me say that again. The Christian faith does not give you some personal, profound ability to be a good person. No, no, no. It gives you the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, by whom He transforms your life into His character and image so that you can now live a holy and good life. But you must have your focus on the, in the right place. And it has never been you. And it never will be. Our author has been encouraging and warning us all the way through this book. And now as he closes his letter, he offers a, a prayer for his readers. That's us. And in so doing, he tells us how we can stay faithful. Does that sound like good news to anybody? How we can stay strong. How we can actually follow Christ. This is incredibly important. The outline looks like this, but no, let you know at the outset, we're going to spend almost all of our time in the first point, which is the benediction, followed by some closing comments. Now, many New Testament letters end with a benediction. By the way, benediction literally means good words. Bene, think bueno, more tied to Latin than, than, than English. Bueno diction. Good words. It's a pronouncement of prayer or a blessing on the readers. Here are some of the benedictions. Just, I'll just read a few. Romans 16. I love this one. I'll try to read it without shouting. Now to him who is able, now to him who is able to establish you, there it is. The one who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God who has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. Does that feel like you? You feeling obedient this morning? Good news. You can. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Please notice, these are not just empty, flowery Christian words. And no, it's not like a bunch of Christian words. These are powerful, good words of blessing to the readers and, and praise to our great God. In fact, sometimes instead of benediction, we're to doxology, which means words of praise or words of glory. Don't miss the first phrase, because it is much as our author says, now, says, now to him who is able, the one who can. When you can, he can. The one who is able to establish you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Do you see? We are starting to get a glimpse of the who and the how. 
First Corinthians 16, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That's interesting. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Why do so many New Testament letters end with this benediction or prayer asking that grace, which we understand to be unmerited or unearned favor of Jesus, be with us? I mean, aren't these letters written to Christians? Of course they've got grace. Again, we are getting a glimpse into how we successfully, victoriously, faithfully live the Christian life. It is by his empowering, ever-present grace. You've heard me say it a million times. I'm going to keep saying it. You needed grace not only the day that you got saved. You've needed it every day since. And the moment that you think, I got this, you don't. Love the last verse of 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Do you see the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in our spiritual growth. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit. God is intimately concerned about our Christian faith and is personally involved. Triune God of the universe is involved to ensure our success. You ever thought you can't? You can because of him. I could keep going. Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Ephesians, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus. Philippians, and my God will supply all your needs and all your wants according to his riches and glory. Last verse of Ephesians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The point is, listen, here's the point. God is so committed to us as his children that he is with us by his spirit and his grace to ensure our faithfulness. That's the point. You're hearing lots of Christian words this morning. If you've tuned out, tune back in just a moment. Here it is. God loves you so much, he will ensure your faithfulness. You can do this. Paul gets to the end of his, all of his letters and says, grace be with you to do his will, to live the Christian life, meaning God ensures our success. Look at our verses in Hebrews. Now, the God of peace, stop right there. The God of peace. Remember to whom he's writing. A group of believers who are facing great persecution and opposition that could turn to martyrdom. And he says, the God of peace? He's reminding us that despite the challenges, the uh, challenging opposition of living the Christian life, the God of peace, which speaks of wholeness and peace within body, soul, and spirit, he is with us, this God of peace, regardless of what is happening out here, you see. But again, some of you may wonder about that address. <laughs> God of peace? You look around his world and you say, what? There is nothing but chaos and pain and fighting and evil and sorrow and, and ruin. There's no peace. And that would be right. I mean, you look around and despite all of our advancements, medical, technological advances, it's amazing that we live in this 21st century. And with all of our advances, the only thing that we seem to do better is kill each other more efficiently. no peace. God of peace? Please remember the four states of humanity. 
God created us in the first state, perfect, good. My goodness, he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He walked with them in the garden. They actually got to hang out with God, but with the ability to not sin or sin, and they chose sin. They rebelled against their creator. And since then, every one of us has been born into that second state with a sin nature. Not, not only the ability, not with uh, the ability to not sin, but the ability to sin and the desire to sin, the propensity to sin. In fact, sin we must. We are the ones who, in our rebellion, plunge this world into chaos and pain and evil and ruin and loss. We are the ones who are responsible. I know that that's a big issue for the existence of God. How can there be so much pain in the world? Look in the mirror. God would have been most just to leave us to our just reward, but he loved us. And he did something about our rebellion. He took the steps to hold out the olive leaf to make peace with us. So in the benediction, our author takes a moment to remind us how God brought us peace, how he acted, God acted to reconcile us to himself. This God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep from the, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. I could preach that verse for the rest of my life. I suppose 54 sermons is enough. But look at it, it is most glorious. God, the Father, is the one who brought up Jesus from the dead. This is the only clear reference to the resurrection in the entire book, but it is implied all over the place, most notably when he keeps quoting Psalm 110, talking about how Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. God raised up his Son, seated him at his right hand, the place of highest honor. And listen, Christian words, the resurrection is proof that the death of Christ for sinners was accepted, was sufficient. More than that was pleasing to God. Every time I think about this, my, my, my head spins. God created this world, gave us a free will, full will, knowing that we would rebel against him. He loved us anyway, and it was this plan since from before the beginning of the world that Jesus would die for our sins. Do you get that? I don't get that. The cross of Jesus Christ was not plan B. It was plan A plus. God raised him. Proof that Jesus' work was accepted. Paul said in Romans 1, Jesus proved himself with power to be the son of God by the very resurrection from the dead. Notice what Jesus is called in this verse, the great shepherd of the sheep. How can you, how can we, mere aimless wandering sh sheep, be assured to follow Christ faithfully because you have none other than the great shepherd to lead you, to feed you, and to protect you? And you may know that the word shepherd is also the word pastor, but it's only translated pastor one time in the New Testament. All the other times it is shepherd. Pastor's primary role is to shepherd the sheep, but Peter calls us 
pastors under shepherds because you see there is one great shepherd, what Peter calls the chief shepherd. He's the one who is shepherding you. He's the one that laid down his life for the sheep. Notice he's the great shepherd through the blood of the eternal covenant. And we remember, I mean, this guy is just summarizing his whole book in like one verse. We remember the inauguration of a covenant required the shedding of blood. The old covenant was inaugurated through the shedding of animal blood. The new covenant was inaugurated through the blood of Jesus himself. Now this author has, has referred to both old and new covenants many times, but here he talks about the new covenant and calls it the eternal covenant. Why? Why that title? Several reasons, but at least because it is the covenant which gives its followers eternal life. It is eternal because it will last forever, as will all of those who participate in it. It is eternal. I love this because there are no others to come. While the old covenant was a type awaiting fulfillment in the new, the new covenant has come. This is it. Do you know how glorious it is to live post-cross? We are participants of the new covenant. All has been fulfilled. We just await the coming of the Savior. God of peace. Brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the great shepherd through the shedding of his blood, inaugurating the new and the eternal covenant. And who is this great shepherd who... shed his blood, who died and was raised again, just to be clear, so that there can be no confusion, even Jesus, our Lord. Don't miss the title. We like to refer to Jesus as our Savior, to be clear that he is. But that term, as I recall, is used of Jesus some 17 times in the New Testament. But he is referred to as Lord over four hundred times. Where do you think the emphasis is? Lord means master, ruler, sovereign. And by the way, that is the key to living this Christian life successfully is to recognize him as Lord. You see, there are lots of people who want to make Jesus Savior. That's good. Fire escape out of hell. But they have no interest in making him Lord. That's the problem. If you are finding it difficult to live the Christian life, failing all the time, you may need to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having identified this God of peace and his work through Jesus on our behalf, the author gets the blessing or the prayer for his readers, verse 21. Look at it. Now, the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christian words, I want to tell you right now, this is a most glorious verse. Without this truth, we would be in big trouble. I want to be clear. Success for living the Christian life faithfully does not come from a new you. It comes from a new you empowered by the Spirit of God. It comes from a new you made alive. You were dead. Made alive because God will equip you in every good, in every way, in every circumstance to do His will. It is God Himself who is working in us to do all things 
that are pleasing in his sight. It's God. This the who and the how by his grace and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Does that feel like you? Feeling pretty good about yourself? Or does that verse kind of bug you? As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now it's even more troublesome. What is this work part? I thought that salvation was by grace and not by work. No, no, no. You are saved by grace, certainly by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But now, having been saved, work your salvation out. Don't miss the next verse. Four. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who gives you the will to even do good, and he works the good in and through you for his pleasure. So, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You say, well, I don't like complaining. Stop! And you can because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Really? Yeah, you can. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you appears lights in the world, holding fast the world of light. Does that sound like you? It can be. Because God works in you to accomplish that. How do we do it? It is God who works in us new creations that we are to equip us to do His will in every way that is pleasing to Him. Notice He does that through Jesus Christ who therefore deserves all glory forever and ever. I love that. First, God worked in Jesus to raise Him from the dead and now He works in us through Jesus so that we don't deserve the glory. If left to ourselves, we would still be in the second state, miserable sinners, unable to not sin. But by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we can live for him. You can do it. And all that may sound like words to you. How do we do it? Listen carefully. Listen very carefully. I do not want you to leave here today bucking up, trying harder, deciding that tomorrow, Monday, you will be good because that will last until about noon. Actually, probably up until the time you have your first cup of coffee. I want you to understand this living for Christ, following Christ is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment surrender to the lordship of Jesus and the filling of the Spirit. That's why Paul said to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep on. Every moment, every day. Well, I was filled with the Holy Spirit yesterday. I heard a preacher say, yeah, but last night you leaked. You need to be filled again. It is a surrender of your agenda to his agenda. It is getting off the throne of your heart and recognize, recognizing that that is Jesus' rightful place. It is praying, God, equip me by your spirit to do your will today so that in all things I will be pleasing to you. Are you listening to me? You can do that. I will go so far as to say stop failing by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Are these just mental gymnastics? 
saying the right words? No. It is a conscious and willful surrender to the God of the universe who has our best in mind. And again, he works his will in us, that which is pleasing to him, such that all glory redounds to our triune God. Now listen. I'm going to just give you a little, it's not even in my notes, I'm going to just give you a little sneak preview. People have asked me, what are we going to do after Hebrews? Well, the, 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 the church is very gracious to us and gives us a sabbatical every five years of service. So in four weeks, I'm going to be on sabbatical, and, 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 and Michael and, and Josh are going to be preaching, which is going to be great. And, and, um, but I've got four weeks till then, so what am I doing four weeks? I can't preach a book in four weeks. So I th- there's been some topics. We, what we're going to do a four-week series entitled The Elephant in the Room. Topics too hot not to, t- to tackle, not to touch. We're going to deal with some things. And one of the things next week, I'll give you a sneak preview. In fact, I'll probably say too much. You don't even have to come next week because you know what I'm going to say. The, the church has started celebrating brokenness. We're just a bunch of, bunch of sinners Look, look at us, we just, we just revel in our brokenness together rather than celebrating our pursuit of holiness. This is what he calls us to be and to do. Yes, we are broken. I don't celebrate that. I celebrate that he has rescued me from my brokenness. That's next week. Another thing I want to be clear about, this is not a matter of letting go and and letting God, whatever that is. There are some things that you do, starting with acknowledging your personal inability and recognizing his total ability and his desire to work things in and through you. Then acknowledging, having acknowledged your inability, we surrender to his control and filling, as Paul said, working out our salvation, understanding that you need him to do it. You surrender to God and work with him. You work with him as he works out his glorious purposes in you. Do you see what I am saying? You are not passive, but nor are you dependent. I said, I don't want you leaving here and saying, okay, I got to do better. You can't, but he can. Be dependent on him, which brings us quickly to closing remarks. My conclusion, the end of the letter. Very sad. I already covered verse 22, where he urges his readers to bear with his exhortation. Verse 23, he mentions our brother Timothy. That's interesting. It's kind of left field. Who has been released. If he gets here quickly, then we'll come see you together. And most agree this is likely the Timothy we know in the New Testament as the traveling companion of Paul and the Timothy to whom First and Second Timothy were written, which is interesting. Paul had written, Timothy was with Paul during his first imprisonment. Paul wrote to Timothy during his last imprisonment, encouraging Timothy not to be timid. Don't be afraid. Persecution's coming. Don't be timid. Sound familiar? If Hebrews was written in the mid-60s, I suppose this would have been about the same time that Paul was in prison, wrote 2 Timothy, and then was martyred, had his head chopped off. Apparently, Timothy listened to the encouragement because he spent some time in prison himself. That's supposed to be encouraging. Through this letter, the author has been encouraging his readers, don't quit. I know the opposition is severe and getting worse. 
And just like Paul encouraged Timothy to be courageous, to stay faithful, so our author has encouraged us to do, think, do the same thing. Apparently, Timothy, listen, he serves as an encouragement to the, those of us, listen, who are tempted to shrink back in the face of opposition. Don't do it. Timothy didn't. He just sprinkles him in there. Verse 24, greet all your leaders. This is the third time he uses that word in this chapter. But don't just greet them. Greet all the saints. That's you. That's you. The word means holy ones. That's what we are as we follow Jesus. A saint. Saint Augustine. Saint Sally. Saint George. Saint Elizabeth. Well, we got one of those. St. John, put your name in. It's who you are. You are a holy one. Everyone plays an important part. Greet everyone. And those from Italy greet you. If our supposition is correct, the author was writing to Jewish believers in Rome. Then he's saying, listen, the believers that you know from Italy, they say hi to. Finally, verse 25. Grace be with you all. As noted, this is a common closing in New Testament letters. But listen, grace be with you all. Don't ever see that as a formal, sincerely yours ending. It carries great truth. The truth that we need God's grace, not only to save us, but to empower us to live the Christian life moment by moment, day by day, So do it, because you can.